Good morning. Good morning. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving and just want to again give a reminder about the uh, the tree that we have there. I know it's been a really rough year for, for a lot of people in town and um, and so yeah, definitely if you're able to, to bless a child in, in town by giving them a, a gift for Christmas, I know that would be greatly appreciated and maybe you yourself don't feel super comfortable going out or maybe you're trying to go out and about a little bit less because of everything going on. They also are accepting donations. Um, so I just wanted to, again, remind you guys of that. And um, Again, I know that this is a very, very generous and, and giving church. If you could turn your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 2. be looking at the last section of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 4, um, which might sound like a lot. It's actually a little bit shorter of a section than our passage from last week. So Esther, chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. As Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she, brought, she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agatite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded so concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress at the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleased the king, 
Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agatite, the son of Hamaditha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder their goods. A copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hachach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hachach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave a copy of the written decrees issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hachach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hachach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then... Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, 
Do not think to yourself that the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to come together and to praise your glorious name. Lord, may we be ever mindful of the wonders of your goodness. May we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come into the world to bring your kingdom, to shine as light, and to reconcile sinful humanity to you. It is Jesus alone who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we pray for your nearness. May we be people who are not stressed by the concerns and the worries of the world, but let us be people who walk in faith every day. Lord, I do want to continue to pray for people who are on our hearts. I pray for Pam Armstrong as she continues to get stronger as she battles coronavirus. Lord, I pray for her healing. Lord, I continue to pray for Barb Allen. Lord, in bleak times, we can look to you as a good God and a big God who can work miracles in people's lives. Lord, I pray for this pastor in West Virginia who's been fighting for several weeks with COVID. Lord, I continue to pray for him. Or Lord, we pray for him. Lord, and we pray for his healing in this. Lord, we again pray for our time in your word. And I thank you for every person here. And I pray that we can be encouraged and edified and exhorted and enlightened through your word. And most importantly, I pray that we can be pointed to your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our Christmas series in the book of Esther. Last week, we were introduced to the main characters of the book. The opulent king Ahasuerus and the great feast that he threw. His wife, Queen Vashti, and her standing up to her husband when he wanted to put her on display. The king's advisors influencing his decisions. The introduction of Esther and Mordecai and Esther's selection as queen to replace Vashti. And the secret Esther harbored that in the Persian Empire, she was Jewish. I had said last week that a look at the major events in the book of Esther as similar to the scenes of a play. Last week was Act 1, the introduction of the main characters. This week we come to Act 2, where we see the major conflict of the story. Haman's plot of genocide. And so today we're going to be looking at the story in three scenes. In the first scene, we see a plot thwarted. So in the first scene of our passage, it's the end of chapter 2. Mordecai catches wind of a plot against King Ahasuerus, 
Looking at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So in the beginning of the passage, we see something important. While neither Mordecai nor Esther are, Israel, are Persians, they're Israelites, yet we see their loyalty to the Persian Empire. The would-be assassins are taken to the gallows and executed. Customs in the ancient world would have called for a reward for Mordecai. He had saved the king's life. But at this point in the story, he gets nothing. That'll be relevant in the immediate context of our story in Esther and in the overarching storyline that we'll see coming to fruition next week. For now, let's just focus on the fact that Mordecai is responsible for saving the king's life and receives no reward for it. So that's pretty brief, our first scene. Second scene, we see the wicked promoted. And here we see the introduction of the last major character in the book of Esther, a man named Haman. Beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agatite. So instead of Mordecai getting the promotion that he would be expected to receive, this new character, Haman, appears in the story out of nowhere and receives the promotion. A brief Family tree for Haman is given. He's not an Israelite. When the story calls Haman an Agatite, he's most likely an Amalekite. One of the ancient tribes who had a long history of warring against the Israelites. So they had a contentious history. And we begin to see the primary conflict of the story introduced. On numerous occasions in chapter 3, Mordecai does not pay homage to Haman, which Haman feels that he's owed. Chapter 3, verse 3. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. It can be tempting to think that this was for religious reasons, not bowing down to any but God. But I'm not so sure I would jump to that conclusion because we see other places in the Old Testament where people do that and it's not looked at as being sinful to show respect to people in authority. We certainly do that in the modern world. If any of us were to, by some random series of events, meet the Queen of England, a gentleman would probably bow down to her or a lady would curtsy. We might think, well, we're not subjects. But even in America, when we go to a sporting event, if you remember those things that we used to go to. We stand for the national anthem. We stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Speaking of sports real quick, Illinois fans, you guys really, God showed his favor on you guys yesterday. That's all I'll say. So Mordecai does not bow down and pay homage to Haman. It seems... But the simplest conclusion is that he simply doesn't like or respect Haman. Now, I mentioned a moment ago 
that Haman received a promotion when one appeared to be in order for Mordecai. And that brings us to something that's a pretty common lament or cry in the Bible. Questioning why God allows the wicked to prosper. We see that in Psalm 94, verse 3. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Or perhaps one of the greatest examples of this theme in the Bible is found in Psalm 37. The psalm begins with explaining the judgment for those who oppose the Lord. It's a 40-verse psalm which goes back and forth talking about the ultimate judgment upon those who oppose God and calls the people of God to patience and to trust in him. Just to give a few examples from this psalm. It begins in verses 1 and 2. I actually didn't make psalm. Uh, Next slides for Psalm 37. But it begins, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verses 10 through 13 again talk of divine judgment, though. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And there are many more examples that we could look to in Psalm 37. But as one last example, just to look at how the psalm ends, it says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers, delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And that's ultimately a reminder that God is just. In world events, we see the wicked prosper. We see tyrannical leaders of nations. We see powerful people who abuse others. Perhaps we've seen examples of this in our own lives. People getting ahead when it didn't seem right. Perhaps we've seen somebody get ahead of us in school, in work, in another situation. But where you knew that they didn't do it honestly. Or that they cheated and broke the rules along the way. And for whatever reason didn't get caught. Or maybe were less qualified but still got ahead. I think we've seen or can relate to those situations. Those things do happen. And we see it in the book of Esther. And God can seem distant when those things happen. The world can seem unjust when those things happen. But God is sovereign over the events of the world. As I've said multiple times about this book, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's present. And while he might not always, we might not always see God in every situation in our lives, while we might not always feel God's presence, he is no less active in our lives today. Unrighteousness and sin will be dealt with by a just and righteous God. It does not always happen on the timeline that we prefer. But it is no less true that God is working out his perfect judgment and justice. In verse 7 of chapter 3, it talks of Haman casting lots. Casting lots was a practice similar to flipping a coin or rolling dice. And he was doing this to find out in his mind 
when would be the right time to go forward with the plot that he had? And that plot is introduced in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. Haman tries to turn the king against the Israelites. Just as a reminder, at this time in history, Israel is in the territory of the Persian Empire. Haman brings up the different lifestyle of the Jewish people. He talks about their laws being different. Historically, this has long been a justification for anti-Semitic thought. Especially for observant Jews. They can be somewhat cloistered in their own communities. Observant Orthodox Jews have laws which impact their worship, which is different from that of the rest of the world. They have laws that impact their diet, their calendar, especially for Jewish men, that affect their dress and appearance. And so Haman appeals to the differences between the Jews and the Persians, and he uses that as a justification for genocide. And to make the offer all the more enticing to the king, Haman makes an offer he can't refuse. Verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hand of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. 10,000 talents of silver. To put that into perspective, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus estimated that the total GDP of Persia in this time frame was around 14,000 talents a year. So Haman has pledged an enormous amount of money to the king, who, just as a reminder, we talked about this last week, historically we're coming off of some significant military losses. So we don't so, so much see animus from the king towards the Jewish people, but we do see that the king, once again, is impressionable and easily swayed. Haman has pledged the equivalent to millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Again, an absolutely enormous amount of money. Now, there is some question among scholars if the amount that he said might have been a slight exaggeration. Um, I don't know if the king looked into his taxes or bank records to verify that he had the money. Um, Just in general, if you ever watch true crime shows, it seems like before about the 19... 40s. It seems like it was just really easy to get away with stuff. So he might have been exaggerating a little bit, but either way, he's bribing the king into genocide. The passage tells us that the king gives Haman his signet ring, basically royal authority in issuing this decree. And word is sent out throughout the Persian Empire. Verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder their goods. It's a holocaust. The entire Jewish race is to be plundered and killed. 
The timing of the event providentially corresponds to the time of year when Passover falls. And from the edict that's given, this day of destruction is several months away. Again, keep in mind that the book of Esther is a relatively short story, but it covers 10 to 12 years in time. So it's interesting timing when you consider the original Passover. God had miraculously intervened and saved the Israelites from the Egyptians. But then once the Israelites had entered the promised land, they continued to sin. And God brought judgment upon the Israelites by allowing them to be conquered and to lose the land. And so was this plot further divine judgment using the kingdoms of the world against the Israelites? Or would God intervene? What was the plan? And with that, we come to our third scene, chapter 4, the response of Mordecai and Esther. Chapter 4 begins by telling us specifically how Mordecai responds to the decree. And it should be no surprise that he's beside himself. He's absolutely devastated when he learns this news. 4 verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And we see a similar response from Esther when she gets word of this. Yes, she's the queen. But it's clear in the story that she doesn't have a role in advising the king on political matters. Verse 11, communicating through messengers, Esther explains to Mordecai that she doesn't even have the authority to approach her husband, the king, without being requested. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So it's been about a month since she's even really interacted with her husband. And so the idea that a law existed where the king of Persia could not be approached While that might sound far-fetched, again, referencing the Greek historian of the same general time period, Herodotus, he says that that was a real thing. And just for historical perspective, Herodotus was not an Israelite. He was not Jewish. He was Greek. And so, again, to remind us in the passage, it tells us it's been about a month since Esther's even interacted with the king. Perhaps part of Esther's hesitancy to bring this before the king was that it would potentially force her to acknowledge that she herself was an Israelite. And if the king's plan was to go forward, that she herself would be part of the genocide. But Mordecai doesn't want to accept what she's saying as a dead end. She's still the person who's in a unique position. That if anyone can help the Jewish people, it's Esther. Verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Again, Mordecai doesn't tell this to Esther directly. They're communicating through others. But he's given her a powerful message. Mordecai has said a lot in these couple of verses, but I want to focus on just three things. First, he tells her no one will protect her either if this plot against the Jews goes forward. Yes, she would be taking a risk in approaching the king, but she's also taking a risk by doing nothing. Secondly, we see the tremendous faith of Mordecai when he says, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place if Esther refuses to act. He's clearly putting the pressure on Esther, but he's also expressing ultimate faith in God's deliverance for the Jewish people. Mordecai has the hope that deliverance will come one way or another, with Esther or without her. Today, is the first Sunday of Advent. And the first Sunday of Advent is traditionally associated with the theme of hope. We see that from Mordecai. And it's an important reminder to trust in God's promises that we too should have hope in God, in his promises, in his plans. God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, but he looms over this book. It is because Mordecai knows that the Lord God is his God and that the Israelites are God's people that he can have total certainty that the Lord will bring deliverance. And we too should have that hope. There's been a lot of stress this year, a lot of challenges this year. I know there's been different restrictions in churches in different parts of the country. Throughout the year, we've had some that we had to deal with this spring. And I know that can be really frustrating and stressful for Christians. And it should be. We should, I, don't, I don't think we should enjoy those things. But I think the thing we should keep in mind when those situations happen is that God is still God. He is still sovereign. Whatever the plans are of the world, of leaders, to have hope and trust and God's continual preservation for his church and for his people. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is the God of his church. He preserves his church. His church cannot be stopped. It cannot be silenced. For that, we should praise God. The third thing that Mordecai tells Esther, and this is probably the most well-known verse in this book, where he says, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What he's saying is perhaps the reason why you're queen in this moment is to act on the behalf of your people. Sometimes we get pushed into moments where it's required of us to do great things. 
Think of major events like a 9-11. All sorts of people rose to the occasion. Yes, people like President Bush, Mayor Giuliani, Mayor of New York at the time. But also ordinary citizens, first responders, people just helping out on the streets, rising to the occasion. A time such as this. We have meaningful moments in our lives. We don't always ask for those moments, but they're moments where we need to rise to the occasion. Perhaps they're not moments where our decision will impact an entire nation, but we have moments that are still significant and that can impact our lives, our futures, the lives of others, the futures of our families. Sometimes those moments call for us to make sacrifices. Sometimes those moments call for us to take risks. Ordinary people get pushed into situations where sometimes you're in a position to save someone's life. Ordinary people get put into situations where sometimes you have an opportunity to stand up for someone or to advocate for someone who's faced an injustice or who's suffered. Maybe you're in a situation where you've gone through a struggle in your own life and you can relate to the challenge that another person is going through and be in a position to help them or to bring them comfort. In those moments, there's a choice to keep on minding our own business, to keep on going with the flow, or to stand up for someone else or to help someone else or to serve someone else. What do we do in those times? That's the challenge that Mordecai gives to Esther. For a time such as this, Esther, this is your moment. This is your defining moment in life. The passage concludes, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then... I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Fasting is just about the only spiritual activity we see in the book of Esther. They round up the Jews to fast. Again, a book that does not mention God, does not mention prayer, where nothing supernatural happens where there's no prophecies, nobody related to Jesus in the book of Esther. But she asks the people to fast. I talked about the the hope that we see from Mordecai. But as we close, let us also not lose sight of the, the faith of Esther in this story. For her to rise to the occasion at a time such as this, She was risking her own life. Again, she says, if I perish, I perish. In that sense, we do see a biblical allusion to the story that we'll see in Mary at the birth of Christ. Mary, too, was put in a situation, not of her own choosing, but where she was selected to be the mother who would bring the Lord into the world. A baby conceived supernaturally, Again, adultery was a capital offense in the first century Jewish world. She was taking a risk. Or I should say she was put into a situation that was risky. 
but she followed God's plan and trusted the Lord. Esther followed God's plan and trusted the Lord. And we too are called to follow God and to trust him in the situations that come into our lives. Again, we're not the ones in control of our destiny, of our fate. But while we're here in this world, we're called to serve the Lord, to be his people. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and just continue to give you all the glory. Lord, I pray for us this week and this Christmas season. Lord, I pray that it can be a time of joy and most importantly rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name, amen.